Thank you for downloading and listening to This Pathological Life. If you're interested in continuing the story, we have a second series called This Medical Life. Please download it and subscribe now. Dr. Travis Brown, why do we need a podcast called This Pathological Life? Every disease has its own story to tell. So we're going to tell them. here at least once a day um, I'm here because of my doctor like like yourself Steve right. um, and most of the other time it's a work hat people right. don't really value what they put on their heads so the hat is not something mm. that they're really wanting to spend a lot of money on it's something that they have to put on we live in Australia and that means it's important we pay attention to the Sun and look after our skin and I'm saying this Travis you know this but my GP just keeps you know getting me to do the right thing and I've just had the full skin scan all is good but it does mean things like melanoma are top of mind and luckily not top of scalp um, but black tumor is where this story begins. It, it is. So uh, mainly occurs in the 19th century. So there, there is uh, the example of one with Dr. Isaac Parrish. He, he wrote in 1837 about uh, a 43-year-old woman who presented to hospital with this tumour on her toe. It's, she, he described it as a, as a fungus tumour. It was purple in colour uh, and the size of a mulberry. So this meant to have existed since birth, but started getting bigger. So the treatment at the time was a ground elm placed on the tumour, laxatives, and leeches to the groin. Now, bloodletting was one of the preferred treatment of choices. And the reason why it was probably put on the groin is because you get lymph nodes getting swollen in that area. So let's assume it's not just a weird quirk, that they were doing it to try and draw out. So they might have thought it was an infection. Draw out the badness or something to that effect. Unfortunately, this treatment didn't work. The patient died. And then, in that time, we called what they used to call it as melanose. This was a tumour of melanose. And what's melanose? Yeah, it's, it goes back to the uh, ancient times, to be honest. We've got uh, references from Hippocrates and, and Rufus of Ephesus, who's a physician. So uh, Hippocrates was in 400 you know, BCE. Uh, Ephesus was in uh, 100 CE. And they wrote of this fatal black tumour that was about now, they didn't know where it was or what it was from, but they did report it. There's even evidence sometimes of uh, pre-Columbian mummies having these lesions over their bodies. It's on the actual skeleton itself, so I'm not quite sure if I truly believe that this is diffuse uh, metastatic spread of melanoma, but you can actually go and search them online and have a look for yourself. So it's been with us from recorded history, we know it exists. It called melanose. And the reason why it was called melanose is because Rene Lanac was a, an anatomist, I believe, who found in 1806 that what people are breathing in with their lungs and all the carbon that's about would reside in people's lungs. And if they did an autopsy, 
what you would find is that carbon resides in the lymph nodes. He was the first person to recognize that that black pigment wasn't the same thing as these tumors, these black tumors. They were different. So we, we even see that today in autopsies or even biopsies of lymph nodes. We call it anthracotic pigment, which is carbon. So when that builds up in people's lungs and you breathe in, it goes to the lymph node and stays there and it's black. But he termed that melanose. And so that's where we get these tumours of melanose. And what was his era? 1806. About that time, we find these melanomas start increasing in the literature. So we get uh, Dr. William Norris. He noted a patient who was 59 years old. He followed him for three years. These brown tumours were over his body. And after three years, so 62, he died. They did an autopsy on him, on the patient, and they found these black tumours everywhere throughout the body spread in every direction. And when you cut it, it had the consistency or the appearance of nutmeg. This is appetizing, this episode. <laughs> so, but that's the understanding of they're coming up. What is this tumor doing? What's it? Why is it black, brown going through? And so, what they found is people are dying from these tumors. And in 1840, there was a, a British surgeon, Samuel Cooper. So, all these treatments that they're trying to do, bloodletting, laxatives, whatever, certainly doesn't work. And so he said, the only way to do this is to cut it out. And so that is true to this day. So then we look in 1857, Dr. William Norris pops up again in the literature. He's found eight more cases and he's found that there's a consistency or there's a trend through these patients that have these black tumours. They tend to have light coloured hair, pale complexions and had increased risk of getting these tumours. And then in 1858... Oliver Pemberton reported a collection of 60 cases of tumour and the first in a black patient from Madagascar. And what's interesting about him, because I did read some of the research that you gave me before our chat, was we're talking in 1858 here, we're hitting that point where science is noting that we're not sure we can go much further at the moment. We are going to need new ideas, new things. In fact, if you don't mind, I'd just like to read this great quote. And uh, it was actually uh, Thomas Fordington who summed all this up. Uh, and it said, As to the remote and exciting causes of melanosis, we are quite in the dark. We are henceforth to confess the incompetency of our knowledge of the disease and to leave to future investigators the merit of revealing the laws which govern its origin and progress and pointing out the means by which its ravages may be prevented or repressed. In your understanding of people you work with, how many of us have the humility to be able to admit that we're at the limit of our knowledge? It's uh, unfortunately it's 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 all too common. Uh, oh. What we realised, yeah. The the thing about medicine is it genuinely one of those areas where the more you learn, the 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 more you realise you don't know. Uh, that's very apparent in general pathology. That's why I, I'm very pleased to have a whole bunch of specialists that I can refer on to uh, when we add it. But you sit there and just go, we have specialties in so many different areas, about six or seven different areas where you learn and study for five to six years 
and know the limits in that area. And even then you have subspecialties in those areas. So we are at the limits and it is a bit of a challenge. And I love that because that's the Dunning-Kruger effect, being aware that when you know little, you think you know everything. And the more you know, the more you realise you don't know. So let's pause and come back to take a snapshot of the best thinking of the current age in relation to melanoma. Just say the simple word, says slop, slap. It sounds like a breeze when you say it like that. Slip, slop, slap. In the sun this summer, say. Let's resume our, our journey in understanding the progress of science uh, in relation to melanoma. We mentioned before that you can go back a couple of hundred years when we're seeing that first realisation that the knife is the answer. Uh, but it wasn't an answer as a blunt instrument, if you like. Give us some nuance around that, so, Travis. So when we're looking at people are starting to understand what's happening with melanomas and that it's a bad condition, that it is potentially fatal, uh, and if it extends, it will be fatal. So when we talk about the British surgeon of Samuel Cooper when he says the only treatment is to cut it out, we need to put that into context as to what he was saying at that time. So it's important to think... 18, so he said that in 1840s. In 1856, had the first demonstration of anaesthetic. That was either ether or chloroform. Chances are people before that were probably using alcohol as much as they could to try and dull the pain. But at the end of the day, you would have been awake while he said, we need to cut this out. It wasn't until the 1860s that Louis Pasteur developed the germ theory, meaning that if they cut something out then there's germs there, but they didn't know that. He was the first to say a germ can cause disease. So there's no sterilization and there's no anesthetic. It's not until you know, 1880s when you start to see that US physicians were experimenting with using milk as a transfusion product. What, really? Yeah, so again, trying to work out if, they, if someone loses a lot of blood, how do you replace that? They used milk. Now, I'm, I would love to find out what the actual results, because, again, it's one of those ones where did they write up the papers? And if they did, I have to find them. But it's not until 1901 that the first blood groups were found. So let's look at this in the context. So you wouldn't have had anesthetic. You wouldn't have had sterilization. And if you lost a lot of blood, you're on your own. And this is the context that you say when they're talking about cutting it out, they're talking about quite aggressive cutting it out, very thick, very deep, and it would be a challenging. But the alternative is to have this black tumour just continue spreading unabated until it takes the ultimate toll. Yeah. This is, yes, the, the, it seems to be the life in the 19th centuries was full of everything going to kill everyone. There's no vaccinations, so childhood mortality was horrible, childbirth was horrible. Uh, this was a, a, yes, challenging time. So let's get back to the nuance of this whole approach uh, because there is that adage to someone who's good with a knife, every solution requires cutting out. But there, there is nuance on the thickness yep. of the tumour that I think the 1970s, we start getting a sense of that, don't we? That's right. So when we start looking at that, what we find is 
about a hundred years later, we find that the study of these tumours starts to become a little bit more specific. So in 1966, we have William Clark, who realised that these black tumours, now by this stage called melanoma, had a depth. And if you looked at the depth in the skin, down to the, the tissue, when you take it out, all under anaesthetic at this time. So what you can find is that correlates is of, with its ability to spread. And so if it's in the surface, we, we call them Clark levels, one, two, three, four, five. If it's in the very superficial layers, then it has a very unlikely chance of spreading. But as you get deeper, it increases its chance of spreading. And this was also confirmed a little bit differently by an Alexander Breslow in 1970s, when he found that thickness is also relevant. So they're relevant, they're related, but they're a bit different. And his tumour thickness, again, correlates to how likely it is to spread. And these are both used to this day. We have about 10, 12 different markers that we will use when we look down the microscope to say, how likely is this to spread? Has it, is it all out or not? And so our progression to thinking from 200 years down the path is that they didn't know what it was at that time. They knew the limitations, but they knew that removing it was the best effective treatment. That is still true today, but we know that the depth and a, a number of other what we call prognostic factors, so how is this going to behave in the future, tells us we need to do further surgery, we need to take this out wider, or it's all out and it's all fine. And what about in the process of diagnosis, there are, I believe, about 10 indicators that someone is uh, prone to melanoma? So we, we have lots of risk factors. So like everything in medicine, prevention is the best management with regards to it. So nowadays, uh, I'm sure everyone remembers from 1980, the slip, slop, slap, uh, which is a very effective campaign when you think about it, you know, 30, 40 years on, we still remember it. Yeah, there's not much I remember from that point of history, <laughs> except for that jingle. That's right. That's right. So it's changed a little bit these days. Uh, it's slip, slop, slap, seek, slide. So, which is seek shade and slide on sun, uh, sunglasses. Right. Whereas normally, because I've got sunscreen on my feet, I'm sliding within my thongs. <laughs> but, uh, right. Well, that's right. So, um, but these ones, when we look at it, we now know that there's a whole range of melanomas. There's about four or five different types of melanomas. Uh, they behave differently, which is why we put those classifications we know that some people who have a high sun exposure, so what we call chronic sun-damaged skin, have certain types of risk factors for different kinds of melanomas. There are some that have low UV content-associated melanomas. So what we're finding is our understanding of how it behaves starts to get even more complex as we go along, and that's why we have specialists in the field. But not only that, there's what we call molecular pathology. So mutations in the DNA. So ones we often term, which will probably mean just nothing other than alphabet soup for yourself. Thank but, you. <laughs> but it's one of those ones where we call, there's mutations such as BRAF or CKIT or NRAS. They're 
mutations in the in the DNA that make melanoma go down a path. First of all, it has a diagnostic purpose, but it also means we have potentially treatment options that target those mutations. From a diagnostic perspective, which ones would would make mean a a specialist or a GP is more likely to recall re re need some support from pathology. So every every skin excision will come to us to look under the microscope. So if they're worried about it, often they'll highlight it on clinical notes and just say um, that will give us an indication. If it's ever a pigmented lesion, we would always recommend doing either a punch biopsy or an excision. And from that, we can tell you how far, if it is going down the melanoma, melanoma line, how far it's been excised, the depth that it goes to, and even does further management need to happen. And then we can type it with molecular markers if treatment is a consideration. And I suppose you'll also come back with uh, advice on which type of leech to use. <laughs> uh, so we, we might have moved on from that one, but if I do that, it's, uh, it's been a bit of a tough day. When my skin doctor said I should start wearing hats because any sort of lesions, any skin cancers on my scalp are really hard to cut out because there's no elasticity up there or not very much in that skin, uh, I've now gone out, I've bought three hats. Travis, have I overcompensated? Uh, if, you, if you have a hat, that's always good. A, a handy hat is always a, is a good, great thing to have. Look, what we know is always saying it, prevention is the best cure. And the hat, when we talk about taking things out of scalps, yes, it's because sometimes when you take chunks out, unfortunately, of skin, uh, on the scalp area, it tends to be actually quite a, a large, deep area, often a round one uh, and it's hard to put two opposing edges of skin together to get a good clean yeah. scar and so that's the problem we we have things like being able to pull edges together to make it a nice neat scar uh, we have things like where they talk about flaps or even sort of taking skin from one area to another to to put it so in, in Australia, hats are fantastic. Sunscreen's great because we know who's at increased risk of getting melanoma. People who have lots of sun exposure, lots of UV radiation from the sun or even tanning beds. Um, if you get sunburn a lot, especially as a child, it's an increased risk factor. People who have fair, air, fair hair and freckles, light eye color, uh, particularly red hair, uh, we know, and they know too, because people who tend to have red hair tend to burn very easily and don't tan, and that's an increased factor for melanoma. People who are immunosuppressed, unfortunately men more than women tend to get melanomas, um, and we know that probably one of the bis biggest risk factors of having uh, or getting a melanoma is having had a melanoma, so, and your family history there. So they're all risk factors. If you can reduce one of them, then you would, do your self, you would do yourself well in the future to try and reduce the incidence of that. Wow. And from your pathological life, I've got to ask you, where's your favourite place to go uh, sunbaking? 
uh, you ask you ask my uh, my wife and the kids. I see them go into uh, you know in winter it's okay, but I, I get that sunscreen out like nothing else come summer. And they they sort of like we've now got the spray sunscreen, so it takes them about 10, 20 seconds. But no, no, no. Um, I'm so sort of like I have that in the back pocket every day. <laughs> okay, so you do practice what you preach. I've never ever had to say dermatopathologist, dermatopathologist, dermatopathologist. Yes. All right, I'll get there. So, Travis, so far we've looked at the history of our understanding of what we now call melanomas. We've looked at the leaps we've taken in treatment over time, but we're at the crossroads now. It's 2020 at the time of recording. Diagnosis in this era, now that we know more than we ever have before, you're good but I think we should bring someone else into this conversation. You comfortable with that? Absolutely. In particular, Dr. Craig James, specialist dermatopathologist and past president of the Australasian Dermatopathology Society. Craig, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. So, uh, Craig, look, there's a few things that we've been looking at, and I think it can cause some confusion because now we've got a whole bunch of subtypes of melanoma that's come out. It's hard to really get a grasp of what's really significant and what's not significant is there a, a straightforward way to do it are they all important are they all important as each other or is there some main ones that we sort of know to, how to deal with i think um, basically there are four more common types and there are uh, a whole lot more less common types and some of them are more aggressive uh, than others and uh, we, we need to know about them. I think what we probably need to do if we're starting 2020 is where are we with melanoma at the moment? We know it's the, the third most common uh, malignant tumour in men and women in Australia at the moment. Um, it's the most common malignant uh, tumour in young adults in Australia. Uh, it's um, derived from the pigment producing melanocytes in the skin and it's potentially a very aggressive tumour if it's left uh, untreated. Um, we also know that last year over 15,000 melanomas were diagnosed in Australia and of those around 15% will die of their disease. Whilst most of them occur on, uh, on the skin, they can also be seen in other rarer sites such as the nasal cavity and mouth and um, anogenital region. The um, main subtypes of melanoma that I think people need to know about are the superficial spreading melanoma, which has also been called pagetoid melanoma, and that accounts for around 50% of the, the total. Uh, there is also uh, nodular melanoma that accounts for around 15% of the total. Um, lentigo malignant melanoma around 10% and acral lentiginous melanoma uh, 3%. This latter tumour is uh, more preferentially seen in Asians and darker skinned patients unlike the other forms of uh, melanoma. The acral type hand and feet location only they that's and also uh, beneath the nail subungle is a, is another important um, group there we've found also with the unraveling of genetics and risk factors more recently and 
uh, and also knowing the role of ultraviolet light exposure helps us to understand why these different melanomas form. So we know that the superficial spreading melanoma tends to occur on uh, intermittently sun-exposed skin and occurs in people who have risk factors such as fair skin, uh, red hair, tendency to sunburn, been using tanning beds, or indeed if you have high numbers of moles or larger moles or, or frequent dysplastic nevi, they're all risk factors to develop that type of melanoma. So you did mention on the, uh, the molecular markers with regards to that. When is it important that we actually, do we do that? Is it the doctor who will say, I want the molecular markers done on this? Where's, where does it fit in? Yes, the molecular testing that we do uh, routinely uh, is for patients who have had melanoma spread either to a sentinel lymph node or they've got metastatic disease. And there are also now trials on patients with thicker primary melanoma, such as stage two greater than four millimetres, where mutation testing uh, will be performed. The traditional um, tests that we look for are BRAF mutations, NRAS mutations, and KIT mutations. The BRAF mutations are the ones that are most frequently seen in that superficial spreading melanoma that I mentioned uh, before. And if they do have this mutation, they become eligible for a targeted therapy, which along with uh, immunotherapy has led to um, some now very exciting uh, developments with some longer term survivors with widespread stage four melanoma. The NRAS mutations are seen across the, the spectrum of melanomas, um, whereas uh, the kit mutations are more often seen in the acral uh, lentiginous and also sometimes in the lentigo maligna melanoma. Getting back to that patterns of melanoma and solar damage, the second type, that lentigo maligna melanoma that I mentioned, they tend to occur in the chronically sun-damaged skin, so a different pathway to the superficial spreading melanoma and different mutations. The nodular melanoma are a bit more heterogeneous genetically and they can arise down either a, a, a intermittently sun-exposed or chronically sun-exposed pathway. And as you would expect, the acral lentiginous melanomas have nothing to do with UV radiation. When is it important that a patient be referred for either further management or, uh, I guess, being looked at a little bit further? Um, well, I think patients who already have uh, metastatic disease will probably already be under the care of a specialist. So where GPs are going to come in is what, what about the earlier ones? When, when do they need to be referred? And I think it, at, at this point, the most important thing for a GP to do is to look at the pathology report for microstaging factors that are going to be important in making that decision to refer. And if they're not sure about anything, then contact uh, a pathologist to discuss it. In the current era, if your melanoma is greater than 0.8 millimetres thick, the Breslow thickness that I think you have mentioned before, then that should be a trigger to potentially send that patient for a discussion about having a potential sentinel node um, 
evaluation because we know if the sentinel node's involved, that gives us important prognostic information and that's also the trigger point to getting uh, the additional therapies that we now um, have. But there are also, if you look at the report, other features that are concerning for more potentially aggressive melanomas and may trigger you considering a referral for a melanoma less than 0.8 millimetres in thickness. It used to be one millimetre, but now it's gone to 0.8. And they are, if that melanoma is ulcerated, I would consider sending that patient for um, possible sentinel node discussion. If there's any proliferative mitotic activity in the dermis of a thinner melanoma, I think that's a worrying feature. If there's extensive regression changes, that's concerning. And if there's lymphovascular invasion or satellite deposits, then, they, then I think they should be referred um, as, as well. Other th considerations for which melanomas might be referred include also, I think, melanomas such as acral lentiginous melanoma, because we know now that these melanomas tend to have a field effect of, of, of mutations in, in the area, which makes actually getting a decent surgical margin around them very difficult. And so I think that's going to be out of the hands of most GPs to deal with and should be referred. There is also a tumour called a, a desmoplastic melanoma. And this is different, again, it tends to occur on the chronically sun-exposed uh, skin of the, of the head and neck. While we know that all the uh, common melanomas, thickness for thickness, tend to behave the same, the desmoplastic melanoma is a little bit different and it tends to um, present as a much thicker, uh, larger tumour. But unlike other melanomas, it doesn't tend to spread around the body as much, but it does tend to grow relentlessly locally and also spread along nerves. And that is a potential problem, uh, obviously, if it's on your head and neck, where it's going to grow along the cranial nerves into your brain. This is one of the tumours that does need a wider margin without exception, like the acral lentiginous, and I think those um, patients should also be referred. Who else would I refer? I think if your patient is immunosuppressed, I think that is an indication to get another opinion because they may behave more aggressively. I think also past history is relevant. We know that if a patient has a, a history of melanoma, they're nine times more likely to get a second melanoma. And so if the GP is not comfortable closely monitoring those um, patients, and in particular, they, you need to be skilled with uh, dermatoscopy in this current era of melanoma and uh, nevus surveillance. And also there are rare cases of uh, familial melanoma where they have a single gene mutation such as CDKN2A. And these patients, thankfully, are rare, but they have a lifetime risk approaching 100% of getting um, often multiple melanomas, and they indeed also have an increased risk of pancreatic cancer. So if a GP picks up extensive family history, then they should be referred. And finally, I think the other melanomas that should be referred are things that are unusual, such as atypical lesions in children, or really rare melanomas like malignant blue nevi, for example, um, or the mucosal melanomas, which we know tend to go very badly and don't respond as well to immunotherapy.
There, there was just one point that I'll, I'll draw up on, and that's just with regards to the margins. Now, margins are always challenging. It's, it feels like they, ch- they change a bit, and the more I read in the literature, it says the wider the better, effectively. The current rule of thumb that I can find in the guidelines is melanoma in situ uh, is a, a re- recommended about 5 millimeter. If you start to get bigger thicknesses, it comes to about uh, 10 millimeter, then it goes to... 20 millimetres, is that likely to change? Is it likely something to keep on having to keep an eye on? What's the, what's the best recommendations we, we have? Uh, my personal view is I hope they change. Um, and I think it's important, the word you mentioned there, they're guidelines. And they're clinically determined measurements as well, not pathologic measurements. I think we've really entered an era now where melanoma management needs to be personalised and not just have broad guidelines. We know we're doing this with the mutations and the um, targeted therapies, the immunotherapies, whether they might get radiotherapy. So it seems strange to me that surgery should be so prescriptive. And I'll give you um, uh, an an example. Uh, Our current view on melanoma is the thicker it goes, the wider we cut. And if somebody can explain how that makes any sense, um, I'd be, be grateful. So why do we do a wider margin? The reason we do a wider margin at all, because if we could get beyond the last melanoma cell and there were no more, they'd be cured with virtually no margin. The reason we cut a wider margin is because partly the way we sample specimens, we typically bread loaf them, which is great at letting us identify a lot of uh, adverse prognostic features, but we really only look at a relatively small part of the margin. And so really adding an extra clearance is is a safety margin to make sure that neoplasm is out. So for five millimetres, for example, for in situ melanoma, I have no problem with that. The problem is if you start looking at why the margins started getting wider, it was because of the idea that we would somehow be reducing uh, recurrences and cutting out satellite metastatic deposits. But it's now been shown that cutting out satellite metastases has no effect on prognosis whatsoever. It's just a bad thing to have and it doesn't alter uh, your outcome. And so if you really look at it critically, there isn't a lot of good evidence for improvement in survival and, and even recurrences for margins over about a one centimetre, with the exception of some of the melanomas I've already mentioned, like atrial antigenous, which we know will need a wide margin, and desmoplastic melanoma, which needs a wide margin. So this is why I say it needs to be personalised. If you look at a nodular melanoma, um, often a, a, a difficult, the one that the GP doesn't want to miss, because this is a melanoma that grows more rapidly than the other melanoma uh, types as a nodule. And sometimes, unfortunately, they may not be pigmented, so they're even harder to detect. They also run counter to all the teaching that's been done before on how to identify a melanoma, which is the ABCD. I don't know if you've discussed that uh, previously, where A is asymmetry and B is the border regularity. C is variability in colour that melanomas tend to have, and D is diameter. They typically are over five or six millimetres in size. But that all applies to 
tumours that are growing in a flat fashion initially, and that's not what a nodular melanoma does. So none of the features that we traditionally have been teaching medical students and above applies in the identification of a nodular melanoma. What's important there is elevation, growth rate, and particularly a new lesion in, in uh, an adult. Now, they're well-defined. So they may be deep because often grow rapidly, but they're really easy to pick the edge. So they don't necessarily need a huge margin around them because they're defined. On the other hand, if we look at lentigo malignum melanoma that occurs on the severely sun-damaged skin of the face, the margins of those are really difficult to determine and separate from background solar-damaged um, melanocytic hyperplasia. So those margins are much harder to identify and they may need a wider clearance to actually um, get around it. It's often clinically clearly much less easy to identify. So I think margins uh, should be uh, personalised in this current era. I suppose with the genetics, I would also say that we've talked about the genetics of um, the commoner types of melanoma and we know there are other uh, mutations and fusions involved in, in, in other melanoma uh, subtypes. But the other uh, situation uh, uh, that's worth discussing is pathologists by and large do not have much of a problem diagnosing most melanomas as melanomas and most nevi as nevi. Where we do have problems are in a fairly consistent group. They're what we call the atypical spitzoid uh, lesions, which unfortunately often occur in, in, in childhood and adolescence, uh, the heavily pigmented melanocytic neoplasms, nodules developing in congenital nevi in children, where the distinction of a proliferative nodule benign from melanoma, which is usually lethal, is clearly uh, important, uh, represent classic areas where um, pathologists have difficulty across the world and there's an imperfect relationship between the morphology and the outcome. So in this situation, we also now have uh, an ability to utilise other tests. And the classic three here are either fish testing, which is fluorescent in situ hybridisation, which uses four or five probes that target more commonly, uh, common mutation abnormalities um, uh, seen in melanoma. And so if you get an abnormal fish probe results, that can be a guide that the atypical lesion you're looking at is, is melanoma. There is also a technique called comparative genomic hybridization that looks at copy numbers and gains in the chromosomes because melanomas are by definition sort of unstable genomically and that can help us also define a lesion as potentially being either benign um, or malignant. And there's also gene expression profiling that whilst not widely available at the moment, uh, will increasingly be used for difficult lesions on the one hand going forward as the costs drop. And also, I think very importantly, for prognosis as well, because I've talked about the sentinel lymph node, which we currently use as the, as the first guide to getting patients into these adjuvant therapies and trials. But it's sort of sobering to realise that two out of three patients who die of melanoma have a negative sentinel lymph node. So clearly it's imperfect and we're not picking 
the higher risk melanomas at an early stage. And this is, I think, where gene expression profiling will come in and we'll be able to do that on the primary melanoma and it will be able to tell us whether it's low risk or high risk. And if it's high risk, those patients will then get access to these um, extra um, therapies going forward into the future. So Craig, we get uh, a different kinds of biopsies come across our desks. So sometimes it's a, a shave biopsy of a pigmented lesion, a punch biopsy, or even an excision biopsy. What is this? Um, is there some preference for what's best? Or is there something that gives us better understanding? Or do you have a, a recommendation for doctors about what is the best biopsy to take when they're going to take a pigmented lesion? Yeah, that's a good question, Trev. The, uh, the gold standard from a pathologist's point of view would if it's a concerning lesion, would be to do a complete excision of that lesion with a two millimetre margin. And uh, the reason two millimetres is chosen is that that uh, clearance margin will not interfere with lymphatic mapping if you need to do a subsequent um, sensorial node uh, examination in conjunction with a wider excision. And one of the reasons why we want to see a complete excision is because pathologists use a combination of features of architecture on the one hand and cytology to make the diagnosis. And if you can't appreciate the overall lesion, it gets much harder. So as a general rule, partial sampling is not encouraged. Is there a potential indication sometimes? Well, yes, there, there are. I mean, if you've got a very large tumour on the face that you're not happy to remove and it's got a nodule in it, it may be reasonable to biopsy that nodule and see if you are dealing with uh, a melanoma and then send it off. But I think everyone who does that needs to be cognizant that the any partial um, biopsy may not be fully representative. The shave biopsy is, is an interesting one. Um, if, it's, if you're going to shave a concerning melanocytic neoplasm, which is obviously not the gold standard, you need to do a deep shave, a shave that actually gets under the lesion. The problem comes if you do a superficial shave, because if you shave it and you end up cutting through the melanoma, the problem for the pathologist and indeed the patient is we may not be able to accurately assess the melanoma thickness, which we know is one of the guides to us going forward for them getting um, adjuvant treatment. On the other hand, if you have a patient with 10 or 20 abnormal looking lesions on the back, it's pretty idealistic to expect they're going to all be perfectly excised with two millimetre margins when it can be looked at much more quickly with deep shaves of those lesions. So I I know there have been a, a paper out of Melbourne suggesting never shave these lesions because you wreck the Breslow thickness, but I've heard a counter-argument from Queensland that if you shave them properly, it's still okay. So I think, um, and, and just and the only final point I would say that I, I don't think I have uh, uh, mentioned before is it's important to know that only around a third of melanomas arise in nevi. And two-thirds are de novo, which is why it's, it's 
important to look for new lesions in, in adults. And this is why things like total body photography have uh, taken hold in certain uh, centres. I want to finish with a communication question. Uh, I have just had my full body scan and passed, but the uh, GP said, uh, you need to start wearing hats because any of that cutting... <laughs> And the scalp is much wider than it needs to be. And it's hard to heal, etc. So I have come on board with a plum. What do you say to people at a dinner party to get them, if you think they're not practicing protective behaviours and taking exposure to UV seriously? Have you got any um, well-worn anecdotes you use to um, put the fear into them to, to, to make better decisions? I think, yeah, well, certainly the incidence of melanoma is unfortunately still uh, rising, although we are starting to see some fl flattening in, in, in some of the younger age groups. So I think, to be honest, I think the message is getting getting through that original slip, slop, slap campaign. Um, uh, but so, and I, and I think people are by and large a little more aware of, of, of their, their skin. As far as uh, fear goes... I could certainly show some very gruesome pictures, um, but uh, I, I, I think it's, it has to start early. And you see that in, in the school now, the no hat, no play, and all this sort of uh, business and, and the uses of sunscreen. So I think, um, I think we are improving there all the time. I think the older uh, generation may be uh, a bit slower to adapt to that, but even I see improvements there as, as, as well. Yeah, so this old dinosaur has been taught a few tricks now. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, well, uh, Dr Craig James, thank you for joining us. Uh, Dr Travis Brown, thank you. I'm going to don my hat and head off into the sunset. Very good. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> This Pathological Life is produced by ClinPath Pathology in South Australia. Episode notes, references and learning objectives, when applicable, can be found at thispathologicallife.com.au and you can contact the hosts on Twitter via at Dr. Travis Brown or at Steve Davis. Thanks again for listening, and just a reminder, if you haven't done it yet, have a quick search in your podcast app for our second series, This Medical Life. Dr. Travis Brown has rolled up some extra guests, some extra topics, and we continue the story there, and we'd love to have you along.